At its most literal core, bread is ingredients. Bread is an arguably comprised of a limited list of items that can be combined, added, and subtracted in thousands of different ways for thousands of different results. One of those essential ingredients is flour and the grains from which it comes. While breads don't necessarily have to come from grains, there are several breads that use potatoes, chickpeas, or other legumes, in fact. For the most part, breads use some quantity of flour to form the basis of dough. After all, you wouldn't get very far with just some salt, water, and maybe a leaven. To that end, I'm your host, Bryn Spencer, and welcome to another episode of The Breadcast, a podcast about all things bread-related. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the contribution of cereal grains to bread making and the laborious process of cultivating and turning those grains into the flour that we use to then turn into bread. Cereal grains have had a surprisingly interesting history, filled with shrewd competition, doomsday preparation, and the burden of feeding humanity for millennia. But when it comes down to it, cereal grains are much more science than story. So let's get right into it. Fundamentally, bread is chemistry. It's all about reaction times and measurements, the science of chemical compounds reacting to one another, or fermentation releasing gases and changing the chemistry of dough. But when we start to talk about grains and how they're applied in bread making, we cross a line into biology, and chemistry suddenly has to make room to share. After all, flour is made of grains, and grains are plants, and plants belong in the biological world. But before I get ahead of myself, I do owe you definitions. As I briefly mentioned in my first episode, An Introduction to Bread, there is that term cereal grains that we use to describe most of the grains used in bread making and human consumption. It's a broad term meant to include both, but what exactly is the difference? The distinction is not terribly difficult, I promise. A cereal is classified as any edible part of a cultivated grass, which still includes the bran, germ, and endosperm. A grain is the edible seed of any plant or grass, with or without that surrounding layer. Now, there are seven principal cereal grains in the world, all of which can be used to make bread in some sort of capacity. There's wheat, maize, barley, rice, rye, oats, and sorghum. Of course, there are I mean, hundreds of grains in the world. These are just the seven that we eat the most. With that in mind, another way of looking at it is that grains are the seed and cereals are the fruit, if that makes sense. Either way, cereal grains are harvested for both human and animal consumption. And once dried, can be kept for much longer without losing nutrients, unlike other staple foods. Like vegetables and fruits, or even root vegetables like potatoes and carrots, can mold and rot a lot more easily than cereal grains, which is one of the reasons why cereals and grains have become one of the most important crops involved in the global diet. Cereal grains can be used to make a huge variety of foods, and while they can be eaten cracked or whole, the majority of cereal grains are harvested for human consumption and turned into flour. If you come from a Western country, or really anywhere that counts bread as a staple food, the term flour is often taken to mean wheat flour. Since wheat is the main cereal used in bread making and historically has been used and considered to be the best for it, I would say that's a fair assumption. Wheat is well suited for bread making because of its relatively high amount of protein and low sodium and fat content. 
and just generally has the widest culinary application of any cereal or grain. In fact, wheat is the most widely cultivated cereal in the world, most of which is grown in China, and Russia and the United States and Australia fall just behind one another in production. Wheat is, for the most part, responsible for most of the flours that you can find in chain grocery stores, and there are so many varieties of it on the shelves that it can get confusing. For example, there is white all-purpose flour, whole wheat flour, bread flour, semolina, farro, spelt flour. Those are all examples of flour that come from wheat that can be applied in baking, but they use different parts of the cereal to do it. Assuming that they both come from wheat, take white flour and whole grain flour. The difference isn't the cereal itself, but what parts of it it uses. Harvested cereal grains are comprised of two parts, the chaff and the grain. The chaff is inedible to humans, but the grain is full of minerals and nutrients, which is what we want, so they have to be separated. This is done by a process called threshing. Now, this is automized nowadays, and there are these magic machines that thresh as they harvest the field, but traditionally this is done by hand. Sometimes they would be crushed with rollers or stomped on by workers or maybe even put into a bag and like violently tossed about until the chaff came loose. Otherwise, the harvest would be laid out on this huge slate and the farmer might use a flail, which looks like a long rod bent at a 90 degree angle like a pickaxe, and then they would break it up. The chaff gets bundled up and carted away to become what we know now as hay, those hay bales, that's chaff. And the grains get cleaned and then they move along to the next process. Now, cereals themselves are comprised of three layers, the bran, germ, and endosperm, which I mentioned earlier. So the bran is the outermost layer of the grain, and that's what contains all the fibers and the vitamins. It's good for us. The germ, uh, which is the grain embryo, is what contains the oils, the proteins, all those antioxidants, which we also want. The endosperm, which is the innermost part, is what contains the carbohydrates and what contains much of the gluten. So that's important for bread making and also important for our bodies. Most flour, especially wheat flour, is some combination of these three parts crushed into dust and ready for cooking. Whole wheat flour is made from the bran, germ, and endosperm, all of it, which is why it's considered to be more nutritious and healthier. That's also why whole grain flour is kind of darker and slightly sweeter, because the bran and the germ contain all the coloring. White flour, which includes all-purpose flour and bread flour, is just made up of the endosperm, which has the most gluten, but also the least color and the least nutrients. To be frank, white flour is a pain in the ass to produce and hugely wasteful. Separating the endosperm from the bran and the germ is painstaking and takes time and labor. And after they're done with that, the bran and germ pretty much just get thrown away. Before industrialization and the invention of modern milling, producing fine white flour took a ridiculous amount of time and energy. So it's no wonder that it was only eaten by those who could afford it, which was, without exception, the extremely wealthy. Until about 200 years ago or so, white bread was almost always associated with wealth. However... Wheat isn't the only cereal with a long history tied to bread making. Rye is the second most popular grain used for bread making, and although it has less gluten, which makes for a weaker dough, rye is a perfectly valid alternative to wheat and bread. 
Rye is used everywhere from northernmost Europe to South Asia and is enjoying a renaissance in artisan bakeries across the U.S. Maize can also be made into a variety of meals and flours that are widely used in breads anywhere from quick breads to tortillas. Genetic hybrids are also no stranger in the world of bread. Namely, there is a cross between wheat and rye that combines the hardiness and disease resistance of rye and some of the high gluten properties and just general millability of wheat. It's called trictocaly, which is a clever combination of trictocum, which is the name for wheat, and cicale, which is rye. It was created in the 1950s by plant geneticists who sold it as sort of a miracle crop that was supposed to produce a higher yield per season. Well, that didn't really work out, and it didn't become the booming major crop that it maybe was intended to be. You can still make all sorts of bread from it, and it tastes actually a lot like a light rye. Um, You can still find it in most stores, just not many people know about it because um, it's a relatively new crop. Really, any grain can be used to make bread to varying degrees of successfulness. Rye, for example, since it holds less gas because of its lower gluten content, is better suited to a sourdough method that has more gas to begin with. Barley is good in quick breads with little kneading or flatbreads and has that sweet, nutty taste. Similarly, similarly, apparently I cannot speak today. I apologize. Similarly, oats can be used in quick breads or oat cakes as can maize, and millet is often used in flatbreads like chapati. Often these various grains will be used in some combination with wheat flour to use the stability of wheat gluten and the flavor and nutrients of other grains. It's a win-win. There are even grains that can be used to make gluten-free breads. For example, millet, maize, and sorghum are all grains that don't contain gluten. Logically, I know what you're thinking, making bread out of these flours would be a problem because one of the key processes in bread making, kneading, is done to gelatinize the gluten in the flour so dough will hold its shape during a rise. But if you're making flatbread, that's less of a problem. So it's totally possible to make gluten-free, gluten-friendly flatbread out of millet, sorghum, or rice flour. And people have done it before. You know me. I'm going to be putting a recipe in the episode link, in the episode description. You know how I like to crowd my episode descriptions with, <laughs> with links to various places. Anyhow, so people have been cooking cereals for thousands upon thousands of years for their nutritious value. But why cook them? Why can't why we why can't we eat them raw? As I mentioned in my first episode, it's cuz we literally can't digest them. If you eat raw grains, then nothing will really happen to you. But also nothing will happen to you, meaning you won't get the nutrients and the fibers in out of the uncooked grains, which isn't what we want. This is why we come up with such lovely things as porridges and rice dishes and bread and yes, cereals. <laughs> so funny. As I mentioned before, grains have had a surprisingly more interesting history than one might expect. Certainly more interesting than I would have suspected. So let's start at the beginning, or at least what we think to be the beginning. Like anything involving prehistory, the question of when humans began to eat grains is, of course, subject to controversy. If you type into Google, 
how long have humans been eating grains? The first thing that comes up is this decisively put excerpt from a Smithsonian article that says, quote, humans didn't start storing and eating grains regularly until about 2,000 years ago, and wheat domestication didn't begin in earnest until about 10,000 years ago. Since wheat and rye became a staple of human diets, however, we've had a relatively high frequency of celiac disease, end quote. The article is titled How Cheese, Wheat, and Alcohol Shaped Human Evolution and goes on to talk about the evolutionary changes that we have evidence of due to dairy and some grain consumption. I read the whole thing. It's actually quite good. But that's just one claim. If you scroll a bit farther down than that, past the articles boldly <laughs> arguing why or why not grains are part of the natural human diet, I should mention that the title of one of them is Sorry Paleo People, which is just hilarious to me. It's so salty. Um, anyway, if you scroll past all that, there are additions to that claim. This article from Scientific American published in 2009 reads that, quote, plant domestication, most scientists think, made its debut some 10,000 years ago, with grain storage cropping up about 11,000 years ago. An ancient site in Israel yielded a hearty collection of grains which were dated to be about 23,000 years ago, according to a 2014 Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences paper. But such an early appearance, appearance of wild cereals in the human diet, as this new paper proposes, would push the assumed date of substantial grass seed eating back more than 70,000 years. End quote. Damn. Okay. That was released just after a team found the oldest grain silos that had ever been uncovered at Dra, which, in, which is in present-day Jordan. They were about 11,000 years old, which is insane, and contained remnants of barley and some type of wheat. It was probably Amar, uh, Pharaoh as we know it today. So it can be speculated, and indeed heavily debated, that humans have been eating grains for as long as 70,000 years. We know bread making in various forms have been practiced for 30,000 years. So I would say that is not an, out an outlandish theory. As for if grains are part of the natural human diet, I really can't say. I would have to do a whole lot more research, and besides, I think I'm biased on the side of grains and bread. Moving on from prehistory, though, we can be sure that grains would have been eaten and perhaps turned into something like bread, dating back to pre-civilization. To bake bread with those grains, however, they would have had to turn them into flour first. Milling in general, and hand milling especially, is a generally tedious process, but certainly not impossible. To absolutely no one's surprise, there is debate as to where and when milling first came about and who it was invented by, but the general consensus is that it's between ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt. Isn't it always? The first type of hand mill, however, is decidedly the saddle kern, which consisted of a flat or round stone where the harvested and threshed grains would be laid out, and then a person or persons would roll over them with a stone, crushing them and therefore grinding them finer and finer until it resembled flour. There are several benefits for milling. It isn't simply about the aesthetics or even the overall flavor and fullness of the bread. It's beneficial to crush the grains into a fine flour before we eat them, in the same way that it's to our advantage that we cook them. Our bodies, despite whatever debates archaeologists may have in the pages of Google, our bodies have a hard time digesting grains in their natural state. 
Crushing them does us many favors by breaking them down before they even enter our bodies, which means that the nutrients are easier to extract. In that same vein, by breaking down the rough layers of the grain, it spares our teeth the pain and wear that comes with chewing something that tough. In early societies where fine flour was almost unattainable through hand milling and most of their breads were coarser, remains of teeth from those people almost always showed significant wear on them. That is another reason why, up until incredibly recently, white, which was often synonymous with soft flour, was coveted by the rich. Not only was it free of the bran and germ, which contain all the color and all the nutrients, which they could afford to lose because they were rich and didn't have to work, there was less chance of catching some stray chaff in your bread, and it spared your teeth. For thousands of years, milling with the use of kerns was considered to be a feminine occupation, and in addition to running a whole household, women would often mill grains into flour as one of their daily tasks. Milling was first and foremost a family affair, and it would be done every day or week after purchasing grains directly from farmers. It required, at least the use of a hand kern, required great skill and patience, as it was important to grind the flour small enough to be actually palatable without also contaminating it with the stone dust from the kern itself. So for the better part of human history, milling was done by hand and in the home, by one or a few people. Eventually, the saddle kern was replaced by the rotary kern, invented in Greece around the 4th century BCE, which was an hourglass-shaped rotating mill with one fixed stone at the bottom and a churning grindstone on top. In the center of the mill was a small hole where the miller would feed the grain through. This revolutionized how grain was consumed at that time. Milling in cities would have moved from an at-home affair to a more localized situation if you could afford it. And with this less laborious and faster way of producing flour, bread was able to be commercialized in Rome around the 3rd century BCE, where it had become an essential part of the Roman diet and the diets of all the surrounding countries. As they made up a huge part of the cultural diet, breads and grains were hugely important to every class of people. In some societies like Egypt, bread was so essential that part of a worker's wage went directly to buying food, so they were essentially directly paid in bread and beer. Which is why milling was vital, and the rotary mill an accomplishment. If you ever have the opportunity to visit Pompeii, there's actually an area kind of near the entrance where you can see a few rotary kerns still standing, looking like they're just ready to be used. I was fortunate enough to go to Pompeii when I was 16, and I remember being so taken with the architecture and the mosaics and the houses and just the general eerie creepiness of it all, that I wasn't even paying attention to some weird-looking mills. And what 16-year-old would? Little did I know (laughs) that four years later, if I could go back right now, that would be the first thing that I would run to. I would give anything to see those those mills. (laughs) If 16-year-old me could (laughs) could see the bread nerd that I am now, she would, I don't know, I don't even know. She had such high hopes that uh, that adult Bryn would be so cool, too. Too bad. But I digress. Uh, before I went on that self-reflection rant, I was talking about Rome. 
Rome obviously became a huge power in the West with populations to feed. The rotary kern wasn't faultless, otherwise we'd still be using it, but it needed human labor to operate. That's the rub. Thus, thus the animal mill was invented, which relied on mule and ox labor instead of human effort. Therefore, more grain could be produced to feed more people without the need for humans who needed to be compensated. Rome's problems were solved. Well, obviously not all of the all of Rome's problems, or we'd still have Rome. Um, but milling using animal labor stood as the standard for a while before something better came along. And come along, it always does. Water milling was the next big thing, the next invention that transformed the milling scene. The exact engineering of it escapes me. I was never good at math. But the basic logistics are that a large vertical wheel is positioned in a source of water, which turns the wheel and carries water to the top to be dropped down and set a grindstone in motion. Or at least that is my understanding. The water mill is said to have been invented as early as the 3rd century BC in Greece, but the earliest known description of one is attributed to the Roman engineer Vitruvius from between 40 to 10 BCE, right before the Common Era. Watermills changed how milling was done, and for the most part, moved it out of the home into its own area of business. And before the steam engine, it was the main source of power for most machines, not just mills that produced grain and flour. They're actually still used in many places today, especially in rural places and rural parts of India and Nepal. Jumping forward quite a few thousand years to 1818, the first milling machine was invented by Eli Whitney, which has permanently changed the game ever since. Nowadays, most of the grains that we consume are milled by automated machines after being harvested, threshed, and winnowed while still in the fields, also by machines. But at that time, grain production took off with the milling machine and changed the world in so many more ways than just that. Because of this streamlined milling process, a variety of flowers, especially white processed flour, became more easily accessible. And our own ideas about what bread should be and what it should look like got flipped on their heads. And they still are. But that's a discussion for a different episode, I think. Getting back to cereal grains, most of us enjoy a wide variety, refines or, uh, refined or otherwise, readily accessible at most grocery stores. Or at least before the pandemic and it was illegal to go outside, I could go to the store and pick up some product made with a combination of various cereal grains that naturally grow nowhere near me. But in light of these truly unprecedented times, which we're all living, it does make you wonder if something were to happen that seemingly inevitable apocalypse that all our books appear to be foreshadowing, what would happen to our supply of food? I will not tempt the universe with putting a scenario out there that isn't already, so I'm going to use the movie WALL-E as a hypothetical example. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's great. The basic plot is that humanity kills the planet and lives in space for a hot second and then comes back to save it because we pack bond with robots. That's that's it. That's the whole plot. Um, so in Wally, humanity comes back to Earth to replant it with one species of plant still alive, and somehow they save it. It's a nice ending, but, but I have several questions. Now, I'm no ecologist, but even I am skeptical of that actually working. 
Even this cynic knows that genetic diversity is the root of all change and the basis of all growth. So they would need more than one houseplant to reforest the earth. Also, unless that plant was food-bearing, they would literally all starve. Luckily, though, if something like that were to theoretically happen, there is a plan. Knowing that genetic diversity is essential to keeping the planet alive and keeping all of us alive, an international effort has been made to store away seed samples of almost every distinct food crop in the world. I'm talking from main commercial varieties of wheat, maize, rice, and other samples, to even small-scale local varieties of crops only found in very specific places of the world. It's like a safety deposit box for the future of the world's agriculture. It's called the Global Seed Vault, located in Svalbard, Greenland, which is the northernmost part point that you can reach on a chartered flight. It's perfectly protected and accessible. The seeds are actually kept in a locked and sealed warehouse deep below the surface of the mountain where it is, where temperatures naturally drop well before freezing with very little humidity, which is actually ideal as that's the best way of preserving crops. It has been designed with the impending effects of climate change or man-made ruin in mind, and is actually a worst-case scenario in case we ever may need to reintroduce genetic crop variation back into the earth. An excerpt from their website explains the vault as, quote, It is a long-term seed storage facility built to stand the test of time and the challenge of natural or man-made disasters. The seed vault represents the world's largest collection of crop diversity, end quote. Setting aside what a terribly bleak picture of the future that paints, you have to admit that is cool as hell. Um, You know me, I will be including a link to their website and mission statement so you can read all about it if you choose to in my episode description. I highly recommend it. It's so interesting. I also recommend, as we near the end of this episode, just take a minute to think about that seed vault and everything that it implies. And take a minute to think about all of the things that grains and cereals have done for us as a species, as cultures, and what they might continue to do for us. For one thing, that vault is a piece of comfort that come what may, we will always have the resources to continue eating the same staple foods that have kept us alive throughout history. Staple foods like bread. And I like to think that that means that the traditions of bread making are sure to continue well into the future, even after we may not be there to see it. Maybe that sounds bleak, but it's actually (laughs) deeply comforting to me. And regardless of the debate over whether or whether not we should be eating grains, I have every confidence that we will be eating grains and bread for a thousand more years to come. Simply, if not because it makes us feel good, and because we want to. And humans, as we all know, are nothing if not stubborn. On that note, that's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of The Breadcast. Uh, This episode is brought to you by A Coffee Edition, Some Very Sleepless Nights, thinking about the seed vault and anchor fm which i use to produce this podcast um as always if you have questions comments requests or just would like to get in touch you can dm me on instagram or email me at brinspencer43 at gmail.com i would love to hear from you 
for behind the scenes content and recipes, you can also go to my website, thebreadcast.com, where you can find all of that and more. Hope to see you there. 